Hi, Nick Vince here. This week on The Chattering Hour, I'm joined by an actor who I've admired since I watched him play Kino in The Guns of the Magnificent Seven, Monty Markham. We talk about filming that, his work on Project X for William Castle, working with Debbie Reynolds in the musical Irene, The Golden Girls, and his recent horror independent film We Are Still Here and Others. Up next in this special extended edition of The Chattering Hour, Monty Markham. And we're back with my very special guest, Monty Markham. He started his TV career in 1966 with episodes of Mission Impossible and had leads in series as Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, The New Perry Mason, and Baywatch. In the 1990s, he stepped back from acting to produce, direct, and narrate documentaries for the History and A&E channels. He recently returned to acting and is known for his top ten independent horror film, We Are Still Here, and others such as Reborn. Such a lot to cover, so let's get to it. Monty, thank you so very much for joining me today. My pleasure, Nick. My pleasure. Cool. What I'd like to do is to take you right back, if I may, to the very beginning. So you were brought up in Manatee County, Florida. Is that right? It's a small town on the West Coast. Um, it doesn't exist anymore. It was uh, uh, taken over by Bradenton. Right. Very uh, bucolic. Uh, it's... Um, we literally had a cow, we had pigs, we had everything over there and a uh, little farming. I was born there, but my mother and father were creating uh, a life and a business in West Palm Beach and right. opened a drive-in and uh, uh, she'd gone over there to have myself. I was born second and then she went back to, uh, oh, that was it. I think I was the only one born there. Oh, she went back to have the twins, Mike and Pat. Right. They were working. They were building a life in West Palm Beach, and we—that's uh, really where I grew up. Uh, very bucolic, and very interesting. Uh, yeah. So, what 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 was your kind of average childhood like then? Were you you say it's very bucolic. Were you what was schooling and so on like? Well, I know England is so full, and then I'm always astonished when I get into the countrysides, but. Um, when I say small town America, it was literally small town America, very small town. Um, but West Palm Beach, uh, it's hard to imagine. Um, I was on Lilac Court between uh, 16th and 17th Street. Right. And, uh, I could turn right and walk west, due west out of my house, and I'd be in the Everglades. I could turn within two miles, and with, I could turn left. And if I could walk on water across Lake Worth, I would be in Kennedy, the Kennedy Mansion in Palm Beach. Wow. It was an extraordinary life growing up that way. But we had uh, a very small house. I mean, uh, we, we weren't poor. We just didn't have a hell of a lot. Right. But it was a four, four room and uh, five people. And uh, the shop, the, cor- uh, the business was around the corner. But my father had bought the four, five lots to the east of us. And I grew up with a grove of avocados. We grew um, all kinds of vegetables. And we were right on the edge of the 
um, what was the colored section uh, known then, colored city. And uh, we raised ducks, chickens, and rabbits. And every Saturday we would butcher, and uh, chickens particularly, uh, and uh, dress them and uh, sell them. Right. And sell the vegetables. And this is while mother and father were running a business and a very successful drive-in. So that's how we went through. So American graffiti, as I've often said, and it was that way. Right, right. So not when so, not so good to be black at that time, but right. uh, that's what it was for us. Yeah. Right, right. So what? When did the acting bug first bite? When when did you first develop an interest in acting? In my junior year, summer between my uh, junior and senior year. I just meant we'd had a great time and a, a great life and a bunch of gang running around and uh, swimming and the beach. And uh, it was a very good life and good education. But that summer, for no good reason, the gang decided that let's put Monty up for president of the senior class. And I was elected. And it really changed a lot of that, the responsibility, et cetera. And uh, we ended up producing the, a senior show. And I played a mystery man wandering around and had a great time. And it was a silly thing, as things are, more like uh, uh, whatever that goon show was. But okay. that summer, I, you had a choice. You're going to be drafted. I knew I was in the draft, but you were junior college, and uh, we couldn't afford university and uh, no way to go any further. So I knew I was either going to go in the service. So I thought I'd take the classes and go into pre-law. And I walked on the campus and the first day and signed up for a very popular English literature class and a um, um, political science. And the teacher was a man named Watson Boone Duncan, uh, seventh in the line of Methodist ministers, but he'd become a great teacher, great reputation. And I registered later on that afternoon. I was wandering around, very small campus, uh, 240 students. It was in a firehouse in an old uh, forgotten town in Lake Park, Florida. And uh, he came up to me and said, I'm doing a play. I'd like you to try out for it. Why? I don't know to this day. And it was called The Man, very heavy psychological thriller. And I ended up killing uh, an actress. Uh, she was a, a year ahead of me at the, at the school. And uh, she later on wrote a book called Jay, The Sensuous Woman, which I think is very funny. Anyway, uh, that was it. And Duncan became a great friend, mentor, surrogate father. Um, Single-handedly, he got me into my first professional job that summer, uh, right out of, I was 19 in Plymouth Theater in Plymouth, Massachusetts, and a 10-week season, played a lot of roles, uh, the heiress, et cetera, the classic uh, juvenile roles. Went back another year, we did three shows at the, uh, it was all, it sounds very good, it, but I don't know what you would call it in England, but it was all done with tight pants and mirrors and a lot of cardboard, a lot of painting and don't exit upstage center. You, you descend right into the parking lot and that kind of thing, but it was great. And yeah. the following summer, he got me into, um, I accepted at uh, Western Playhouse in Vermont. And that was a very heavyweight theater. Great time. And in the meantime, I thought that's it. I'm going to stay in New York. And I got a call that he'd made a contact with a gentleman at the university of Georgia and between them, they got me an out-of-state tuition rep waiver. They got me a job in the mess hall. And they got me a job sweeping out the dormitory. So I had a place to eat and sleep. And uh, great help from friends, neighbors, and people in there. They uh, came up with the money for me to make the tuitions, et cetera. And that was it. And then I had 
you know, four glorious years at uh, the University of Georgia, two graduate. I went back. It was a great theater. It's one of those things where the football team just doesn't graduate. They keep coming back and they keep winning the same champion. It was just, I cannot tell you, I, uh, the plays I was able to do as a young man. And so then I did the Shakespeare festivals at San Diego and Oregon, but it all goes back to Duncan. And there was a wonderful man in Georgia named Leighton Ballou. This is a long answer, but it's my life in a nutshell. And had I not had that kind of basis, uh, uh, we could do anything. With Duncan, I swear, uh, Nick, I felt like I was in 1890s. I would go to people's houses and I would recite, I would recite poetry. Uh, I would go to the ladies' auxiliary meeting and do this and that. And I would do... Um, Edna St. Vincent's Millay, The Murder of Lee uh All on 600 Years, and et cetera. Um, um, God, Sam McGee. Uh, it was all, this, anyway, it was just, and I kept thinking, I did a scene from a really wretched English drama with a gal, and we had terrible, called Dregs, and I'm acting my butt off, and we're on the couch and rolling around and doing stuff, and all these ladies are just, mm-hmm. but this was, Duncan's background of North Carolina and uh, South Carolina. And so I would, uh, we sang, we had quartets and we did things. And uh, I appeared in a silly town and gown show as the prince in uh, Sleeping Beauty. So I could get some costumes for them for Death Takes a Holiday that we were doing. It was just that kind of madness. And uh, it worked. It worked. It stood me. I keep, what's the word, channeling that every time I work. Right. Because I think one of the things I know you for is your wonderful speaking voice. Was Is this just something that can, came naturally to you, to people like me, just say, your, your beautiful speaking voice, was this something you consciously developed or just something you were born with and this is the way you talk? I talked incredibly fast, uh, motor mouth, etc. And I, you're speaking too fast. I can't hear, understand you until I met Duncan and while well, became president of the class, I had to talk a lot and I purposely began slowing down, but with Duncan, the plays we were doing and the articulation, but I think going back to all of the poetry, um, and Shakespeare and I, the, classes at uh, oral interpretation of dramatic literature classes you'd have to do, meaning it was a job and I'd hated it. I was working in the mess hall and doing this and that. But this was at Georgia and I would run in and I uh, had a class, I'd say, but you're supposed to memorize. Well, I had barely memorized and I, you're reading the lines off your forehead and that's the best you can do. Then you have to sit there and take all the criticism from the class of how wretched you were. And I just... I guess I learned language and I went to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival and did Hotspur and uh, a wonderful Horatio. I'm, I'm known for my Horatio. Years later, I did a Hamlet at uh, University of Florida, uh, California. Wow. I didn't pay much attention to it, Nick, until I was on, I uh, did a television show. Uh, a lot of television and things. And then I did my company doing second hundred perpetual motion films, doing all the documentaries. I did all the narrations for over a hundred films, all of my films that we delivered to the network, uh, A&E and uh, history. Sure. 
and I would be standing in a line at um, at the supermarket, and the clerk would ask me something, or someone I knew at the market, and I'd see the person in front of me turn around and look at me as if they knew me. Had no idea about the, any of the shows I'd done, or wasn't any television at all. But I know your voice and that kind of thing. And right. Right. finally, the president of the network said, uh, "You're my favorite," but I said. All of History Channel sounds like Molly Markham, so we're gonna we're gonna have to ask you to have some other people come in and do the thing. So, so, but I think it, Nick. I swear to God, I think it just it's a gift. It, it can't. I don't. I can't hear it if it makes mm. any sense. I can feel it in my throat. Yeah, uh, I, I do a lot of voiceover uh, commercial work and things like that, but I, I don't hear it the way you do. And I oh. wish I did. It's wonderful. I, I listen to it, recordings. Just sounds like a guy, right? Right. Well, I, think, I was yeah. doing my first really film. I'd done Second Hundred Years after Power of a Gun, and I was doing a William Castle uh, terrible piece called Project X, and it was a two little scenery uh, kind of a role. And uh, Christopher George and Charles Bluthorn was running Paramount, and the girl, the star, was Gerda Baldwin, and uh, nobody knew who she was. She couldn't act. And says, well, she's Bluethorn's latest squeeze. I went, okay. But I went outside and asked somebody something. He said, yeah, somebody asked me what's going on and where are you? And he said, there's a guy in there tearing the scenery up with words. I had great speeches and it was a wonderful time. Very schlocky, but it was a great time. Great time. I was, I was going to ask you about Project X um, because I, I, <laughs> I watched it. I really enjoyed it. And I thought, yeah. I mean, okay, listen, it's of its time. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's made in the 1960s. Therefore, anybody, you know, any costumes of the future, basically, they're all one pieces or mini skirts. Or I love the plastic helmets. The, the, the Thank suit. you. <laughs> great. It was a great cast, a terrific cast. Uh, very well shot, very well done. I met, we did the underwater sequences, and that was, uh, I met Joe Barbera, Hannah Barbera, and went over to the studios. Worked with him through all of the animation and became a great friend of Toth, uh, the, the guy who designed the whole thing. It was a lot to it. I mean, I uh, we filmed it all at Disney Ranch, and uh, most of it, and uh, at Paramount. Wally Westmore did my makeup, and I can't think of the other name. It was, uh, it was always watching a Paramount film, and you'd say makeup by Wally, you know, right. and the woman's name, and she was, and they were in there, and I. And the distinction of being made up by all of the Westmore brothers at one time or another. Because, uh, I mean, the theme of the of Project X is, you know, it's like overpopulation, uh, genetic engineering, biological warfare, East versus West. W was it controversial at the time? Or is it just, it's a William Castle, it's a B-movie, I'm, I'm getting paid. <laughs> no. I liked the script. I mean, I, I was loved it. And uh, it, it was very, uh, very well taken care of on the set and big production. And uh, I didn't feel silly. I mean, I, you, you do it. I mean, you always do something full bore. I wouldn't, mm -hmm. I wouldn't have done it if I didn't feel like I can. Gregory, his name was Gregory. Yeah. Right. Chris, uh, Christopher George. Uh, and it's hard to say. Uh, the only time it was kind of silly was with Gerda. I mean, she, you know, it's like you're going of, I can act a little, you know, it's kind of thing. It's uh, a limousine would pick her, bring her to the set every day. And I get to, who is this? The interesting side note, 
Nick, is that while we were doing it, there was suddenly a lot of attention on the set, uh, uh, suits coming in, and uh, Rosemary's Baby had been published. Oh. And the entire Hollywood community was bidding on the book. It hadn't been published. It was in the, uh, what do you mean, in the uh, galleys. Right. And they're all making, talking to agents and things, and it finally comes back to Ira I can't think of the writer, but it came back to his agent. He says, well, it's already been purchased by uh, William Castle. And I can remember the shudder that went through the whole artistic community at Paramount. My God, Mr. Schlock owns the bright. So then they came down and that's where William got his, he, all he did was average credit, smoke a cigar, sit on the set. Don't say a word. Don't do anything. And he was very funny. He says, well, Monty, they want the thing. So there we are. That's a great time. He, he loved it. He had a great time. I saw him often after that, but right. it was one of those flukes, you know, just a, a great time for a, a good guy. He's a, he was a good man. Right. Right, right. I mean, a tremendous reputation. I mean, things, House oh. of Haunted Hill and, you know, and The Tingler and so on. As I say, you know, I referred to the B-movie because that was his reputation. But Project X is a is a good film. I was really surprised. And as I say, it deals with all these big things, incredible cast, the animation, so which you referred to, I just thought it's so clever. Yeah. It's really interesting. It, you know, great visual. You know, great visually, just to look at it, and and so on. It's wonderful. It's like a guy doing um, Yogi Bear, and yet his studio says finally, "Oh, we're going to do this." And it was Toth. He was making his living doing that. He was a very interesting man. I can't think yeah. of his name. I want to say yeah. Dave, but I'm not sure. But Toth, I'm sure, was his last name. And he, right. I was in his room with him, watching him design, and he was. It was very exciting. It was. It was a great time for me all the time in, uh, in film. I spent all kinds of time behind the camera, in front of the camera, and everywhere I could, scoring sessions. Um, little known, uh, my first makeup for uh, Mission Impossible, that was the first television I did. Yeah. My makeup man was Johnny Chambers, who designed the uh, Planet of the Apes, did all of the magnificent work. And his partner on the set was Danny Strepek and Danny Strepek did turn the guy into a snake. These were two geniuses of early. Um, they were the East Western guys right. in the East. You had uh, Smith and the others, but John was a great friend, became a great friend uh, the whole time. And uh, Danny, but we were doing Planet of the Apes. And then uh, my son ended up with one of the pullovers that you could put on the heads for all the vast crowds of planets. But John went on to be, he disappeared and the found out much later that the CIA hired him and he created many, many things for uh, a car rounds a corner with a man sitting in the seat and the guy rounds the corner is being followed. They fall out and you jump in and there's a, another guy can do the same thing on his head or there's a quick blow up or there's a quick anything, but he invented all kinds of things. I worked with the CIA later on some documentary filming and uh, for Air America and uh, Cat and uh, met some people then. But it's like, we can't really tell you, you know, if I have told you, I have to kill you, that kind of thing. But John was great. He just disappeared. And uh, then he came back and died shortly after. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, you mentioned Mission Impossible, but also working on films. And I mean, the 
the next big film I wanted to talk about was The Guns of the Magnificent Seven. Was this just a casting or when you turned up? How long do you have? <laughs> Go on. I'll let other pieces out. <laughs> I had done uh, Hour of the Gun was the first film I did. And that was with the Mirrors Corporation and a uh, great casting director had done that. And I met Sean Sturgis and uh, I show up in Torreo, Mexico. And so we're there, but you signed with Mirrors and there was a, a three picture deal that you, the option you right away on the set was, it was um, Johnny Voigt's first film and mine and uh, uh, Sam Melville, uh, Frank Converse. These are all guys whose fingerprints would be on the uh, same scripts. And uh, we were all under contract with Mirish. You had to sign an option to do a feature at those days. And the film came up. I did the second hundred years. I went back to audition for that and then got the role. I never thought I'd get it. And we did. So then I got uh, Project X while I was waiting on that. And then uh, I was cast to do uh, Guns of the Mag 7. Paul Wincos, the producer and director, I met him. But Walter Mirish and the Mirish guy, they were all terrific people. And uh, I think it was one of the most, um, I, it's just all things considered, probably the greatest three months of my life. I just... Uh, the only thing wrong with it, my family couldn't be there. My son was, uh, my daughter was uh, nearly six, and my son had just been born in 68. Uh, February, I was doing a Ray Bradbury play, and then this comes up. He was only about four months old, five months, and he couldn't, my wife couldn't travel with him. So she came over for uh, a 10, 12-day period, which was marvelous. You had time on, time off, but the cast and uh, it, it just, everything worked well and uh, it was a damn good script. Um, George Kennedy was the sweetest man. He had got an Oscar for Cool Hand Luke and what's his name? Uh, Yul Brenner did not want to do another one after disaster. The first, um, uh, first agreement. Yeah. Sequel. Yeah. Says, no, no, I don't do this no more. It's garbage. And so, uh, Somebody looks around and says, let's put George Kennedy in. George was delighted. He says, I never get to play a leading man. Here I am. And uh, it was great. It, what can I say? It was uh, three months. We stayed in Madrid. Um, the um, shoot was a wagon wheel. In other words, Madrid was the hub. So we always came home to Madrid every night. But you'd go out 50 kilometers here for the fortress. They built this in the, the fortress. So we'd go over here for something else or over here for another scene. And uh, But... It was all on the Extremadura there, right around Madrid. It's a very rough area, but Madrid is one of the great, great cities. It was, I can't think of their patron saint right now, but it was the big festival. And Cordo um, Base had completely revitalized the dying sport of uh, bullfighting. So the great, great bullfights were going on with Cordo Base, Odonez, Paco Camino. These were the ascension of this is the new guy and the two guys would be standing on the sidelines at the Barrera watching it and quarter base are doing all this stuff. And they kind of look at each other and said, the kid's great for the sport. And that was that kind of thing. And Joe Don Baker bought a cape, um, a matador's cape and he wore it. And uh, he was dating a girl that was uh, one of the stunt, uh, was a stunt girl, but work, wasn't working the film, but she wore a mini skirt and Joe would walk down the middle of Madrid. And this is 1968. And uh, the, the uh, Spanish would look at him and he'd have his cape on. And think, what the hell are you looking at? And then he'd look at her with her miniskirt and he'd, what the hell? She, she, had look, she got her right. And Joe was just funny as hell. 
very, very combative. Uh, Bernie Casey, uh, his first film, and uh, Sweetheart of a Man. Uh, Randy Santoni, comedian, playing. Uh, would be eating lunch on the set and doing something. And <laughs> Bernie would say to, um, how do you say, uh, I'd like another one, uh, pork chop in Spanish. Randy looked over at him and said, Puerto de chop. <laughs> Bernie Danner hit him. Not very funny, mate. And we did it. But it was it was just great. Uh, we had time off. The other the big thing was we showed up and we had a week there, and Vince Finley was the producer. And uh, he allowed us a week to acclimate to the time change. And then we went out to watch the the Spanish stuntmen work out and show us what they could do. It was like a, I mean, one guy would, a lasso, lasso, four horses, stop them. And another guy would run up a uh, pole and cut the wires and then run down the pole. I mean, run down the pole. It was just amazing. The only story I could say that's extremely funny or good, we thought was funny. Frank Silvera, was one of his last films. Frank was a great man. We had a big, long shot. It's an opening scene where the, um, <laughs> we're on the hill. Uh, it's one of these, we did some bump, 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 bump. We're coming up. We're going to do the seven. We got the seven. Here's the seven doing this. There's the seven coming. These are connecting tissue. And it was a morning shot about 6 a.m. And they wanted a dawn against the sky. And they would introduce uh, Bernstein's music. And so we had, uh, Bernie had a big gray horse. He was a big man and a big horse. So we're on the hillside there and we take off and, uh, George goes over and I go over the hill and wet grass and all of that. And we feel ourselves. We can hear the music. And then you hear this, damn, what do you stop? And we kind of all stopped and looked around. Bernie's horse had just sat down on its butt and was sliding down the, the hill. So we all gather around and said, what's going on? So, well, I don't know what's wrong with this horse. Let's do it again. We did another shot. Bum, bum, bum. We're going to think of the horse. Boom sits on its butt and just slides again. And finally we come up in a very sheepish wrangler, the Spanish wrangler, it's a senor, the horse is been. Well, the horse uh, had a, what, a, an open wound on its a saddle sore. Well, they didn't have a donut, be like a bagel. And you put the bagel over the donut, then you put the saddle blanket on it. But they had used it for somebody else. So we had to change saddles and pull it back. And then it worked, but it was just funny as hell. And they've got some stills of him. Bernie's feet out like that, and he's looking sides and can believe it. Um, it was a great shoot. I, I, I can't thank you for bringing it up. I thought we we're going to talk just horror. <laughs> no, I thought, no, oh, no, you, no, you, you wait. We're going to get to Irene at some point. Oh, oh. <laughs> you're looking at one of the most fortunate uh, actors in the world. Nick, uh, there's nothing I haven't done. Uh, if anything, uh, Duncan gave me that. You do everything and uh, everything that's offered in a sense, if you can find a reason to do it, if it's good enough for this reason or not to do it. But uh, I've done everything from like say mag seven to captain kangaroo saying, and put on a happy face. And uh, it was like, what else could I do? I've toured. <laughs> so, you know, great people. Uh, right. And right. working, with, you know, Ray Bradbury and Norman Corwin. I mean, when I was at Screen Gyms doing Second Hundred Years, I won the Columbia lot. 
And this is before Columbia merged and moved. And the television shows are all Larry Hagman and Bewitched and all of these. And she, well, but also you'd walk out and coming down the street would be these incredible showgirls for their shooting um, Barbara Streisand, Hello Dolly. Oh, right. Next door to me is a soundstage and they're shooting Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Spencer Tracy. The makeup man got me to the electrician and I got in when I wasn't filming. I went up and up into the grid. Uh, the the balcony for the uh, Christians and I could watch and I watched filming Catherine Hepburn and uh, Spencer Tracy and the set the Columbia was like that there were all kinds of things from movies going on and I'm doing television and the monkeys were there and the monkeys were breaking down and raising hell on the thing and they were it was that kind of craziness but uh, yeah welcome to the 60s Because you mentioned television, one of the things you also did was the six million dollar man uh, yes. playing the seven million dollar man. <laughs> the uh, stories are true, all true. That's the good thing about him. It was. Um, I'll think of his name in a minute. He wrote Cyborg, the six million. He wrote it. Um, he became a great friend, a pilot. He's a madman in Florida. My brother Jess, who had been an Air America and a pilot, had known him and we went down to Gainesville and met him and flew in his plane a Ford trimotor and with the swastikas on the side but he was a demon writer wrote voluminous kind of mad adventure books but he wrote six million dollar man and he went to the studio and said Molly Markham has to play this role he said he is the six million dollar man and what's his name had a uh, who is the six I can't think of his name right now but he was they wanted him meaning the studio did he had a Strong television name. And uh, Lee Majors? Yeah, Lee Majors. Yeah. I'd, I'd known Lee. I met him many times, but he was doing it. So it was on and on. Well, Harv Bennett was producing. And next thing I do, I got a script um, to do The Seven Million Man. Harv was cursed at uh, Universal because they did a movie, a movie of it, a television movie, Six Million Dollar Man. And Universal said, and NBC, I guess NBC said, uh, and you make this a series, we need it right away. And Harv is a genius and a writer and ready to do it. And he put it on like, I, I want to say something insane. Like he started a television series in eight weeks. Well, Universal was filled with uh, many, many producers, Roy Huggins. It was, a, it was a machine turning out 14 hours of series a week. Harv did it in eight weeks and I'll keep delivering the scripts and the shows and it'll work. And they did. And all of them cursed him and said, well, now you've shown them that we can do it if you have to do it. But he sent me the script. I thought it was great. And uh, there was rumors that it was true that uh, it was a big success that first year. And uh, his agent was going for the moon on money. And uh, Harv said, I had the line in the show, you think they made just one? Uh, I was there, you know. I was cast and I was doing it. And uh, they made the contract finally. And he stayed on. And uh, But I had a great time. Uh, the toughest part of it was, as you know, it's all slow motion. Well, Nick, they can see all of your mistakes, all of your, I don't know. So you have to concentrate on that. You don't want your tongue sticking out. And Lee by then said, I don't like doing it. He didn't do a lot of that. He really hated it. And Vince Diedrich was an older guy, stuntman. And if you see when we jump off the telephone pole in that opening sequence, when he goes to have his first battle, I, Vince jumps and he hits the ground and you see the ankles kind of go. Mm. 
And Vince kind of busted both of his ankles at that time, just running, but he kept running. And I jumped like a hero and I didn't bust mine. And I ran in, but these are all stuntmen I knew. Uh, and I had worked with them and uh, they just gave me a hard time. But all those, I had, you had to do them. And it was a guy that I lifted over my head. He weighed about 140 pounds. He was uh, Paul Newman's uh, double, not double, but he would stunt, do the stunts. And uh, Everett Creech was in the truck and then somebody else had it. But I had to pick that guy up and they'd find some way to wiggle me and drop it and do it. I did it about six times to throw him through the lead fence. And I never felt as bad in my life at the end of that day. And that was, it was great fun, but I look at it now and it was, I don't find it. That was a, <laughs> what, can we do? what more can we do to mark him? Yeah. But it was e- good people. Yeah. So how many episodes did you do? Just the two. Uh, it was, uh, the $7 million man. And then uh, a year later, they called me and I did the bionic criminal and I became the bionic criminal. I don't know. They, they turned me down and they toned me down to a normal man, even though I had, you know, four appliances, and, uh, you know, psychologically, I just couldn't make it, you know, and thank you, Lee. You know, it was, it was tough. <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. It's, well, that's well, the thing about guest starring. There's, it comes a point. <clears throat> No matter what you're doing, uh, there's the hero of the show or the regular of the show or the star. Of the there comes a point where you have to remove your cojones and give them to them, and they'll put them all together for you and give them back to you, and, and your life will go on, and you've been saved, and it's worth it. The medical shows were the worst about that. <laughs> That's just a sidebar for guest starring in television. Right, yes. Something's always something to bear in mind. Oh, yes. But I mentioned earlier on Irene. Uh, oh. Broadway debut, I mean, opposite Debbie Reynolds. Yes. So John Gielgud directing. That was the, we started. We started with, I mean, what's not to like? I had, I told them, I said I'd really like to do a musical and uh, I'd like to go on, I'd like to go on, I'd like to do a Broadway show. And word was out at William Morris and uh, with my manager and them. And then I was working and then this, I got two scripts. One was a little night music and the other was Irene. And I read them both in a night, looked at them. It was the the lieutenant in A Little Night Music, and he was a grandiose guy character, but it's the character that can really be stripped down to nothing and just mm-hmm. do a, a song or two. And uh, then I looked at Irene, and Marshall was there from beginning to end, and I said, oh, this looks good. And I hear it's Billy DeWolf and Patsy Kelly are cast, and uh, can't think who else at that point. Peter Gennaro's doing the uh, choreography, and Sir John Gielgud, and... Uh, Harry Rigby and uh, Matt Harry with, with uh, No 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 Net and Al Selden who had done Man of La Mancha and here's and then Jerry uh, I think it was name who created Builder he built the, the building his family Minskoff mm. there so um, Follies opened and came out to L.A. and I met with um, uh, the musical director who was an old friend from the San Francisco Actors Workshop uh, Paul Gimignani. His name is, you'll see it all the way through now. Uh, that's another side story. But I talked to Paul about doing it. And he said, well, it's there. We'll do it. And uh, we talked. And he said, it's good. And I met with um, the writer and a uh, wonderful man. And uh, then I flew to Vegas uh, at 3 in the morning. I met Debbie after a show at 3 in the morning. And um, it was a piano player. And uh, 
kind of the, the lounge and uh, dark and she came in. Okay. Okay. And I went up and I sang, uh, try to remember from uh, whatever that show is, the fantastics. Mm-hmm. Just, okay. He's a singer. He's a singer. Okay. And that was it. And, uh, and then I did a, a tap dance on a board, uh, not a tap dance. I worked on a board with Al Lantieri who had worked with Peter Gennaro and like did some like it hot. And they were chorus boys together. And Al got on the phone and uh, Peter talked to him. Peter had a side list like this and he was talking to him and I could hear it on the phone. And he said, all right, having to do this and this. And so Al says, try this step and try that and make a lot of noise. I said, okay. And Peter says, well, what do you think? And Al says, yeah, I think so. And Peter said, okay, he can learn. Okay. And that was it. So that was it. That was me and Irene. And it was uh, that way when we showed up. Uh, rehearsals and it was a big deal. Hell hath no whore, like a $7 million advance, a million dollar advance for a movie, uh, for a play theater. And uh, everybody was very up on it, very high. But uh, it was kind of Debbie's first stage, legitimate stage. And she was very nervous and wanted everybody surrounding her. So we had her, Carmen Alvarez and Jeannie Sell playing the two buddies. Long story short, we got to New York. I got to the opening uh, preview in Toronto. They crammed the sets onto the Royal Alex. And um, it was taped. Opening night, America. Uh, Johnny Carson's announcer was Ed McMahon. And it was shooting Irene. And do it as a what's happening. And there's an opening number that just keeps developing. It was brilliant. Uh, Molly Harper did, kept doing the music in uh, Peter. And Peter's assistant was... Uh, Bob Fosse's ex-wife, uh, I can't think, but she was wonderful. It was great. All of the material, all the people. And the chorus, the chorus, Debbie starts dancing and the two friends and they all keep doing it. And it's a trio and they all over the place. And then the chorus joins her and it's a big, you know, first act number. Well, Debbie sees it and uh, she looks like a gnome between two giants. And then the next day it started with there being, as you know, uh, choreographed upstage and Debbie's and it was kind of a trek then of Debbie feeling more confident and pulling people and things uh, to make it more. She was really more comfortable as Debbie Reynolds, not as Irene. And she was comfortable supporting herself and her, we're in an elevator in Philadelphia and out of town. And she weighed about a hundred pounds, maybe soaking wet, maybe 99, but she worked hard every day. Right. And we're in the elevator doing rewrites and it's going up. And I looked at her and I said, uh, you really, you really need to do this. And she said, when's the last time you bought any Carl's shoes? Well, it was Harry Carl she'd married and he just gambled away 99% of her money. And she needed the job, took it, got well paid. And uh, it was, uh, uh Carrie Fisher was 14. She was in the chorus and uh, she was terrific. She was lovely. Uh, the boy was in the hotel room and uh, it, she eventually cleared people out. And so when we got to Philadelphia, uh, she didn't want John. Uh, next item, Sir John is fired. And John, I don't know what your audience is, but we had lunch or dinner, a dinner in uh, Philadelphia after I got the word 
And uh, <laughs> you see, it's, oh, fuck them, fuck them. They still have to pay my residuals. They still have to pay my royalty. Yeah, fuck them, Monty. Yeah. He was wonderful. I mean, it was like just a terrific man, uh, very elegant. Uh, but like even I've heard the English say, yes, he's a lovely man. It's kind of direct. Don't let, you know, uh, John, please don't cry. Yes, all right. Uh, I've heard all kinds of John's stories, but we were, we just had a grand time. I, I love John and he was very, uh, John, very good to me. Now we were a good time. But they brought in Gower Champion, and Gower came in, and uh, I met him, and they canceled the preview opening in the Minskoff, uh, and we took four weeks cold at the National Theater in Washington, D.C., and we rehearsed at the Eisenhower Center. I met Gower, and Gower had seen the show, and Gower came backstage to see me in Philadelphia, and he said, I don't know what I'm doing here. I said, I swear. I said, the show is terrific, and Peter's uh, choreography, all of the work. And I, okay, so then we get to Washington and we go to the first rehearsal line and he comes over to me and he said, she wants you out of the Irene number. Well, the Irene number was one of the biggest numbers you've ever seen. I, Donald Marshall, when he comes in and the real play, he kisses her. She slaps him and he gets on the floor. Then he leaves. Well, in the thing, she slaps me and we talk and do something. Oh, no, that was at the end of the scene. She starts playing the piano and then... I come over and we start a soft shoe. We do a soft shoe kind of off beats. I, the dump, the dump, the dump, it was off tempo and she loved it and we loved it. And then we kept going and going and then the pit suddenly picks up and they're doing uh, Hungarian rap, da, 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 and we signal. They had hot plates on the stage and we moved four player pianos into position. And then I lifted her up onto the piano and she threw her a broom and she twirled a broom and walked back and forth along and dancing and we're singing and I'm playing with all four pianos running back and forth. And at the end, she does a big twirl and leaps off the piano and I catch her and spin around. Great number. Uh, the audience loved it, had a great time. I looked at Gower and I said, damn, I said, well, look, if she wants me out of it, I said, get me out of there pretty quick then. I don't want to hang around the stage. And that same night, I gave my notice to the producers, and I said, I really don't want to stay then. I'll stay with you and uh, until opening, and um, maybe in June, I want to take my kids and go back to uh, California. And they were agreed. And, um, but she also wanted to kill the uh, Great Lover Tango. And Gower said, if you kill that number, I'm not doing the show. So it stayed in, and I had still had the Great Lover Tango and a great time. Uh, it's, I understood everything that was going on and why. Uh, you wonder how things could change your life. I mean, had everything gone exactly the same way, I would have stayed in New York, I'm sure, and gone right into something else and just stayed on. Um, but it was a it was a good time. It was a, mm. it was just. I mean, I was never so impressed. Um, I can remember the first day of rehearsal in the Broadway theater. And it was likely you can imagine the same thing in England with, but the windows were all along the floor and the wall and there were seats and chairs and the book people, you would work in one studio and do all of the book work. Meanwhile, the choreographer and the chorus are all working it out and they're your substitute is working the steps with, and then you come in and then they fit you into that. And they were fitting me into the Irene number, uh, not Irene, the, uh, we were doing, yeah, we were doing the Irene number. And uh, I all sang out, and I remember looking over at all the chorus boys were sitting along the 
and the bench is watching us. And I kept thinking, if it means anything to you, they called me the butch canary. And it was uh, a lot of gay young men and a lot of non-gay young men and a lot of uh, wonderful married couples, singer dancers. Uh, there were singer chorus, there was dancer chorus, there were singer dancer chorus, but they very hot and they were all sweating and that, but it was just elegant looking at them. I, was, I, I thought I was seeing a, a wonderful painting of them silhouetted against the thing. I have great memories of all of that. Uh, the theaters were just fabulous, and it'd be great because I'd, I'd never worked in New York uh, on the Broadway stage and did some off stuff, but, and it was just, it, it couldn't have been more perfect and it would have been perfect had I stayed and been able to stay, which I would have, hands down. Yes. That's a story. Right, right. And it seems an awful shame. But as you say, <laughs> oh, it, yeah. You know, no, what, what happened that, you know, one of the things that happened next was the Golden Girls <laughs> <laughs> with Betty White and the rest oh, of the guy. I, I, when you say there's nothing I haven't done, it was, I, I have wonderful, iconic moments. And I, uh, I think back more now because I've had to do a lot of writing and a lot of uh, work on all of my papers. Uh, all of my work has been the University of Georgia has the uh, Peabody um, archive and the Peabody awards. And they have the art, the great library archive, giant, beautiful uh, facility had wanted my papers and my stuff. And so it's between perpetual motion films for the document and all of that. So I've been having to boxing them up and deliver and, uh, but you got to identify everything. And uh, anyway, going to golden girls, Paul Witt, Paul Younger Witt was the associate producer on second hundred years. And, uh, we'd worked, you know, and finally he directed the Christmas show and, uh, then we went our separate ways. And, and next thing I know, he's doing something with uh, Thomas and he's married to what's her name. And uh, they're doing this wonderful show. And I had met and known. Uh, oh, God. Uh, who's the hundred year old lady? Almost a hundred. Uh, oh, Estelle Geddes. No. Uh, no. I mean, give me the cast. Her name is gone now. Um, She's about to turn a hundred. Oh, right. <laughs> Welcome to the club, man. Welcome to the oh, club. Yeah. <laughs> Betty White. Betty White, yes. yes. <laughs> I mean, I knew from the screening, Screen Gems lot, and I knew her many, many times, actors and others for animals, and we've been together, and, and we never worked together. So I I get a, a script from Paul and said, we'd like you to do this, and it was uh, you know, Clayton, and script was just wonderful and funny, and... Uh, I hit the set, and the set is everything you could imagine. Uh, it's exactly as you imagine. You saw it in, in, on the, uh, the shows. They were that good. The writing was that good. A wonderful director and crew. Uh, B, I'd known B in New York, met her several times. Uh, what's his name? Uh, her husband uh, had directed same time next year when I took that over. Um, that's another six million dollar man story. Bernie Slade was my writer who wrote the pilot for Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. And then he wrote in a week, and as he said, over a long week, second hundred, uh, same time next year, and then wanted me to do the role. And uh, the Broadway producer said, you know, we need a Broadway name. And that's how I did not do same time. And then the next 
every time somebody would leave, Charlie Groden, Charlie Groden did it, and Charlie, every time somebody would leave, they very called, they said, can you come in? I said, no, I was doing something else, and doing something else, and doing something else. And miraculously, uh, in 77, I got a call in December, Don Murray's leaving, will you want to do it? I said, you bet, flew in, met Betsy, met everybody, Betsy Palmer, and uh, opened uh, New Year's night in, uh, at a snowstorm in 78. Uh, really? But the director, whose name I can't think of right now, he was married to B. Arthur, and he had come in to see it. Right. He said, yeah, you know, we, we should have done it from the beginning. It was a great time. And they, uh, it was closing in six months, and my contract was six months. And uh, Jack Lemon was coming in with Bernie's new play, and they had the theater booked, booked Atkinson. When I came in, I got re-reviewed with Betsy, and uh, the box office picked up 85%. And the producer looked at me and said, damn, we'll have to. So I stayed in, and they moved the show to the ambassador, and we did it there. And then I left after my six-month contract. But another $6 million man show. <laughs> but the show itself, I mean, um, <laughs> It's a very, very popular show. And I mm. saw all, oh God, maybe six, seven years ago, maybe six, yeah. And I said, you know, I get more comments on that show. It's like it's playing all the time. I said, on the airplane, I get all of the, the, the gay uh, stewards who loved you in Golden Girls. I mean, thank you very much. <laughs> and it's, it's a good time. I mean, I, I, but Paul laughed and he said, that was one of our, most popular shows. So when we strip it into syndication, we don't just do the 22 shows that were that year. We may drop it in many years and just drop it into another 22 cycles. So over the 10 year period, I keep being dropped into within a single year, a couple of times. And I'm getting very nice residuals on it. And I, uh, thank you, Paul. Thank you. But it explains a lot. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I, was, I was chatting with Barbara Crampton. Um, oh, the, the, the other day, which, and we'll come to you working with Barbara please in just do, a few, few moments. But before we do that, then I'd just like to... So in the early 2000s, you actually left acting to... Or you put it on a back burner, rather, to concentrate on doing the documentary series you referred to earlier on. So, which is quite a, a switch, I guess. How did that come about? It was actually... Uh, I was doing Baywatch and uh, very well, and I was also had done the first season of Baywatch, and then I had directed a feature defense play for a producer before. It was very successful as a foreign pre-sale, and uh, then he gave me another script, uh, Neon City, and I spent time rewriting all of that, and uh, uh, produced and directed it. We shot it all at Salt Lake, and uh, Michael uh, Ironside, Vanity, uh, good cast. And it was, a, it was a Western, but it was a Western the year 2050, it was like um, the gal that originally wrote it, she wrote it watching uh, Stagecoach. So she says, suppose they have to get from Jericho to Neon City and cross the Badlands. And it's all after the nuclear and the, all the cost, everything, whatever goes on. And uh, I had done that and uh, it went very well and did, did well. And, uh, but I was, Baywatch was down for a year because they wouldn't buy it for another, they, they could buy it for another season, 
but the people who were financing it, um, Grant Tinker, who had Mary Tyler Moore's house, he had it as a show, but he, they deficit financed a number of things, Gannett newspapers, and they finally, you know, we're not going to deficit this show. So we were down and the producers of, uh, of uh, Baywatch, they got permission from Grant. They said, can we sell it for syndication and do it ourselves? And they did. We were the first new show in syndication, original. And uh, during that down year, well, then we come back and I did the first year of syndication directing. I directed a few of them and was having a good time. But I had done a on camera air combat. Uh, U.S. News Magazine was going to say, why can't we do what time does with all of these uh, videos? And so they created a video arm and air combat. And they went to Ferdy Grofay Jr. He had uh, a bunch of videos of uh, you know World War II and uh, combat, etc. And they asked me to do on-camera host, which I did. And it went well. They wanted another one, uh, Combat at Sea. And I did narration, no on-camera host. Then they wanted another air combat. And Ferdy had uh, just not done good budgeting and, and bankrupted himself. So I talked to the young director who had been directing me in this, the first one. I said, you know, would you, we could do this. So he agreed. So we agreed to partner and I put a mortgage on the house and I guaranteed to uh, U.S. News that we could deliver the 13 hours of air combat too. No on camera, but we did a lot of cre- recreations. And so we did, and they bought it, and um, I knew I was going into it, and I, I uh, told the Baywatch I just I couldn't. I had to walk away from that because I said I couldn't run the company and do. We were doing a lot of filming and a lot of work, and it was a big investment. I wish now that I had not. I, it's one of these moves that it would have been very easy to just stay and do Baywatch. It was right down <laughs> Malibu. I, I could uh, – Will Rogers Beach, all of my work would have been there and uh, maybe work one day a week. And I could have certainly fit that in. But at the time, I was overwhelmed by the responsibility of what we were dealing with. And my wife as partner and my son, uh, we all signed the uh, bills on it. Uh, my partner, uh, son Jason, uh, did all of the uh, post. In other words, he ran post-production. And Claire and I hit the road uh, doing things with uh, when we were shooting. So that's what started. And we did those 13 and then they wanted 13 more. Uh, we created ideas for them. Uh, this one was um, Masters of War. It was one-on-one. Uh, uh, Kennedy and Khrushchev at the Bay of Pigs, uh, um, that kind of thing. Mm. And that went well. And then we did more <clears throat> recreation. And then we, um, they were deciding to do biographies a new, uh, meaning a new biography rather than the reruns of CBS. And we pitched and got 10 options for five, five and five. And it was <clears throat> a whole different world. I mean, I would, I don't think I would have stayed with them had these not come up, but it was, they were just excellent opportunities. The first five we did, uh, Michelangelo, um, Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, Michelangelo, Cleopatra, Attila, the Han. <clears throat> it was like they threw a dart, uh, dartboard at uh, names and say, do these. So we knew we were doing three in Europe. We Budgets were rat guano, and we made it work. So it took a uh, photographer. We went to Rome. Cleopatra was in Rome, and uh, Attila the Hun went to Rome, and Michelangelo. And our films were 
extremely high quality. And uh, I bought all of everything I knew to bear on it. Great scripts. And they stand today, um, the films we did, those particularly those biographies, um, Michelangelo, um, God, uh, Washington, Franklin, um, then some other ones we made later in the second group. Uh, it was just a great, great time. So it became, you want to do something that you've never done before, great adventures. My God, I'm in, you know, we were standing outside of St. Peter's and we didn't have permit. We had permit to do the Vatican and we shot some Vatican and now we're begging. And the woman that was let us in and she said, no, 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 the lights, you can't say, no, no, Kodak gave us a super fast film. We just need to get, okay, 45 minutes. You can have 40, gave the camera and my son was pulling focus. So they all ran through St. Peter's and shot, you know, Pieta and everything and covered the whole thing. And we they got out the door and they had a, about 10 minutes to spare. And I looked at them both and I said, give me the cameras. I said, go. And they both went in then and just tourists enjoying. And meanwhile, I was still haranguing the woman. It was that kind of filming. We did every history channel then gave us a perfect storm. Said, can you do something with this? And we did it with the original cat, uh, people, the, the pilots that flew, the guys that ditched, um, they were doing the film at the same time and the director asked to see mine and he looked at us to get the narrative. And when it was all said and done, he said, we should have done your script. We should have done your show. And it was a great time. Uh, again, we did every military vessel in the world, uh, in the American, uh, right. you know, everything. And then every sailing ship. And in sail 2000, we brought the, the great ships into New York Harbor. We were on a tug, leading them in and then shooting and I had cameras on everybody. It was, it was very seductive. And, uh, and by 2000, uh, in 2008, we were doing Boneyard. And uh, when we got to 2008 with the collapse, um, a big client that was financing collapsed and left us with a multi, multi, multi big bag. And so we'd spent the next maybe two years paying off bills and paying off people and taking care of it. And I, Claire and I were not on the road. Uh, that was the other thing. Claire and I hit the road. She produced, I directed, we produced and directed. She did, did the makeup. Um, God, it was just great. And we'd take a cinematographer. Getting back to England, we, we had met Patrick Turley. And then when I came back to do the four hours of the Royal Navy, it became a great shoot with Turley and uh, all of the English cast and crew. And it was just amazing. So to answer your question of why or what the change, it kind of became itself. I was very unsatisfied in 92. Baywatch was fine, but it was very, very simple. And uh, yeah, I was looking for new challenges. And this idea of doing it was just great. And getting back to Duncan, that was, and Baloo was a guy at Georgia. And you just do everything and you just take it on. Right. Nobody, yeah. But I met Chris Rowe through Gary Lockwood. And uh, that's been a, uh, a blessing. Uh, Chris is a third man, uh, a terrific man that yeah. uh, has come into my life. And it's been 10 years now. We've been having a great ride. Uh, as I'm sure Chris might have said to you, when I came back, Nobody, nobody knew my name. No, I, I would go in for an audition. They send me in and then there'd be a, I'd realize I'd been out 20 years on the road 
And so this guy's 30. I said, he's 10 years old. He hadn't seen anything I've done or something like that. And so I told Chris, I said, Chris, we'll, let's do anything and everything. If it's a audition for, you know, uh, Mickey Mouse, I will. And, uh, I'm the new guy in town and it's a great feeling. Uh, I'm now back to winning with an audition, not being called and given a script. Uh, they want you to do it because of what you've done. I have to go in and earn it and win it. And, uh, this is what happened on uh, one of the films you might ask me about is uh, Edge of Isolation. But that's it. Yes. Yeah, well, actually, before, because that's actually one of the more recent, because we were talking about um, about horror films. I did want to touch upon uh, We Are Still Here. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> With Barbara Crampton. As we... Well, you, you asked me about uh, um, Guns of the Mag 7. You got to ask me about we are still here. It was an equal, wonderful, magical time that it happened. That um, Barbara, the, the the cast made that work, and the cast was put together by um, Travis uh, and Ted Gagan, and I was in there, and, and um, Chris had a shot at it with uh, what's her name? It was a cast. They said, I don't know if Chris had mentioned it to you, but I, they asked him, do you have, and Chris says, can I help you with anything else? And he said, we're having trouble casting the, the, the old man. That was a, the guy that ran the town. He said, I got a guy. And so they cast me and I went in and worked on everything. The script was excellent, really excellent for the character and everybody else. And um, my first day on set was, um, chewing ass on the the specter, the guy who had been burned. What are you doing here? I was just going right after him, chewing him from one end to the other. That was my scene. And I came in and they, all right, let's go. Roll it and re rehearse. And I started rehearsing and finished the scene. And Ted looked at Travis and he says, we got to do some rewriting. They responded to what I wanted to do and did with the character and God bless, they fed everything. Barbara, um, Sensing, Ted Sensing, uh, Essendon. They were, they were all very strong individual performers, actors. And uh, it would not have worked. I don't think so for one instant if Barbara had not so fulfilled that kind of power. And it was, uh, we see it all the time. It's a cliche of, man and woman have lost a, a child mm. and we all, it's such a cliche today and doesn't mean it's any less. I mean, some of the major films today are those films loss of a child and it's just rich. And it resounds in the midst of all this, not giggly horror, but horror, mm. you know, uh, mm. it, the finale, you know, with uh, the gal who played the bartender, Damn good actress. I mean, here I am. Come everybody. Uh, mm -hmm. She's what, what doing outrageous things with how many, you know, how many <laughs> scissors get stuck in her, or knives get stuck in her neck. And me, I'm sitting there with my head gets it. What happens to you? Well, son, I got to tell you, I squeeze my head and it blows. Oh, okay, fine. Excellent uh, effects people. They were just fearfully insane in the room and working in the hands. I, I took a hundred stills of that room with different devices uh 
again, it goes back to, I don't know what the budget was. I will say this in all of the films and everything I've ever done. Uh, Travis is a class, complete class act in the sense that everything was there. And he sat on the camera with uh, Ted. Ted was Ted's first film. And Ted had seen enough and written enough and done enough PR on everybody. He knew what he wanted and how it was to go. And all of this came together in 10 degree below zero. Every day you're freezing everything. It was, but it was Palmyra in New York and we were isolated in this house and it, it just played and it worked. Mm-hmm. Rich, it's same. I have the same feeling of being we're Madrid with this family, so it comes together in that kind of a way. And you're a part of it from beginning to end. That was the big. You're there from first shot to last. Yeah. Ask me anything you want. I'll be glad to tell you. <laughs> well, I, one of the things I just must say, I'm fascinated to know that that end scene was the one that you would begin with, because I, what I love about it is the transition from the character in the film when you first see him all the way through, which just sets up that end moment so perfectly. Because it's what's going on is just like, this is not the normal reaction you expect from somebody when they're dealing with burning ghosts. But within the concept of the film and your performance and the way they wrote it for you, it just works beautifully. I had to make sense of, um, look, I, I still don't know what's under the house. We all, I said, I, I remember Ted, Ted, he said, what's this, this uh, Ted, I've got to know. And the, the line we finally got was, you know, every 30 years, the goddamn thing comes out and it wants blood and we have to give it to him. And so we, they was, well, why don't you move? Why don't you just move to another town? So, no, it was, you know, this is my town. And it, it all of it, and they responded big time. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and that you then worked with Barbara again on Reborn. Ah, let me go back to one thing I would like to say, and I said, Larry Fessenden. Larry was one of these deceptively beautiful actors. I've worked in theater with them, and they are the people that are the first ones you hire to be part of your resident company because they can kind of do and fit so many things and do them, but. The final, the finale of it, uh, how do you buy, how does the audience, how do you tell this story such that you believe the mother has been so devastated and so devastated and so devastated that she would rather have her son this way than no way at all. And that's why she goes down. And then the camera's on Larry. And he trying to believe and wants to believe and it's been the good man and when he gets to the head of the stairs and turns and looks down and the, that the quality in his voice and what he did when he said i forget what the child's name was johnny or something mm. and he and what he said would be like saying child's name is bobby it might have been bobby i've got i've got billy i've got Billy, maybe Bill, Bill, yeah. Bill, Billy yeah. or William. He turned yeah. the sound in his voice and went, Billy? Uh, it was in wonderful. And I kept thinking, those are, it's like the line is read absolute perfect and then you can bring the curtain down. Yeah. Uh, the what the reading and the work. I, I'm, you can tell that I'm, oh, what I was going to say about Travis. I got a participation check. 
I have never received a participation check from anything I've ever done. It's always, they're Mickey Mouse contracts. It's called, you know, there's golden points and there's silver points and there's paper points and there's points that exist somewhere in Cleveland. And we don't points, they got a whole drawer for them there. But as the actor contracts in the particular, in particular format now, um, he said, and I'm sending this off before I've done bookkeeping and accounting. It's one of the things you can get to distribute to the actors after bookkeeping and accounting. And as a producer, he said, no, I'll give it to you before I settled all my bills. And it was, it was just wonderful. I, uh, it was a significant amount and it was not like, you know, a $2 residual. Just wanted to say that about him. There are, right. there are producers and he represents the best kind yes. of. Yes. Cause I know he, he, he uh, Travis then went on to work with Barbara on Barbara's latest film, Jacob's wife. Yeah. Directing. Barbara was uh, a joy in that sense. I mean, it's like, it's, it's, she's a heavyweight. Uh, and in the sense that life has put her in a genre, life has put her, it'd be like somebody said, I'm a heavyweight soap opera actor. Well, there's an art to acting soap opera. And it's, uh, there are people that come into it and go out of it. it I did it for a year uh, with a nighttime soap and thought it was going to be different and, and it drove me out of my mind, but I couldn't but it's a world of its own. But what she does and has done with her work, I mean, she's first class. Yeah. First class. Yeah. Yeah. No, and as I say, you went on to work with her on Reborn. Yes. That was a, I don't know what she told you about that. <laughs> well, basically that she had a weekend to prepare for it. You know, yeah, but she was came in. We had yeah, she was replacing someone. I went into the scene, but it was even knowing when I did the scene with the actress who was there. It was, it's like I've had a couple of those occasions in which the person is. It was actually mostly during the seventies, when a lot of cocaine and uh, drugs and it was heavy weight on the set. It, there were actors that I'd worked with in theater that you know they'd have just too damn much to drink uh, between matinee and evening, or they'd have too much to drink before rehearsal. And uh, you either they're either gone or you put them out or do something. But drugs was a, I mean, that would you know you come in after lunch and the director would be flying when you come back after lunch. All oh, right, we're gonna fly here now. We've had a few things and everything okay. Everybody okay? Good. Yeah. Oh God, it's gonna be one of those afternoons. You know, <laughs> it was crazy. Yeah. I don't know what it was like in England. <laughs> It was quick. No, I, when when I was um, making Hellraiser, I was working in an art center as well. My pay the rent job was doing marketing and so on in an art center in a, in a small town. And we used to have a lot of touring companies come through. People who'd been on television, who'd done really well in soap operas and so on, and were now doing theater <coughs> on the name, you know, on, on the back of this stuff. Too many of them, you just look at them and you can see it in the skin and the fact that they are up in the bar almost after curtain down. You know, within five, ten minutes of curtain down, they are going to be up in the bar in the theatre. But you just think, it's such a waste. You you're, you lose so much yeah. um, if you are suffering from that, that particular illness. Um, they're not judging people on that. But... Um, We've talked for an awfully long time. There is one thing you mentioned earlier on, uh, edge of isolation. Yes. How did that come about? Did you see it? I have seen edge of isolation. Um, 
I, it's, Chris had sent me a, had set up an audition and uh, the audition's material was the climactic scene. He's in the cave and chopping and when uh, he raves at them and uh, end up tying up the young man and the girl and and I, Jeff Holcall is sitting there with the, Gal has a camera and he was looking away and I did the scene and it was a moment of silence and I hear him say, awesome, damn. So then I left and then Chris said, they want you to do it. I said, fine. And uh, then something else happened. And then anyway, Jeff wrote it, produced it, raised the money for it. Um, the only, it, I, it was, it was a damn good script in the sense of the ideas. Uh, the budget really showed heavily with the, uh, uh, the outcast, uh, the, but the idea was excellent. And, uh, I, I really responded to it and the point of view, it's, it's going back where I'm in Pal Palmyra, New York and the Mormons and uh, their story of having to go and you get out because we, people just don't go along with it. What, you know, oh, by the way, we happen to, uh, you know, well, we, we eat, uh, we ingest, you come back into the cycle of life. Well, and I can believe that. That makes sense to me. Okay. And uh, the only thing that I felt it's too bad he didn't have enough money for it uh, to really hire a cinematographer. Mm -hmm. We had a, a, an artistic young man who been a poet and studied poetry and wanting, but he started doing portrait photography and became, and he shot the whole thing with a, you know, a regular, what do you call it? Single lens reef of the camera. Right. That's a lot. Yeah. So there was no, it suffered quite a bit. I mean, uh, Jeff knew where he was going with the camera. The cameraman knew where he wanted to be. And then you're kind of a, but they were looking for, you know, Hard requires a bit more. I mean, the depth and the look and the feeling of everything is must need, need to be richer. Yes. And, uh, yeah. Well, competitive today, I'm amazed. I've been a member of the Motion Picture Academy 40 years with that documentary committee, and, but I'm getting all of the, uh, the, the technology, the new material, but I'm just stunned and amazed at uh, the student films. Well, the student can be 20 to 75. And you're looking at them, all of them, you said, damn, this, I mean, it looks like a David Lean opening and a feature and you're watching and watch. And then somebody opens their mouth and they can't act and the script is terrible and that kind of thing. I, it's all of the technology and these people are getting films to direct and they still have the same problem. So I went up for a couple with Chris that we'd gone in and I said, no, I mean, there's no way I'm going to do this. These people have no idea what they're doing and you're going to fall apart on the stage. But it's, uh, I have to congratulate Jeff. I mean, it was good cast, good people. Mm -hmm. And it, it was just so limiting in the, uh, the quality of yes. uh, looking at. And you miss it because the competition today is, I mean, my goodness, it's uh, so strong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a real shame. As I say, I, it was, funnily enough, I was put off by the trailer because they really should have colorized the trailer better off. When you actually get to see the film, the colorization in the film is actually better than in the trailer. But uh, you're absolutely right. It's, it, I'm sorry. I know what your cinematographer is, but it just I, didn't work. It, 
in a weird way, I could mention it. I think it's available somewhere in YouTube. Or something. I did a, a comedy, same shame on the Bixby boys. And it was written by uh, Bill Bowers. Bill Bowers wrote support your local sheriff. And they, a brilliant, wonderful man, but he Oscar nomination for the gunfighter with Gregory Peck, but he wrote this. And so uh, his son was going to direct and Terry Frazee was putting up the money for it. We shot it good cast, but we really didn't have any money or time to shoot. We shot at the old Paramount ranch before it burned down. But Michael Mileham was the Englishman, a cinematographer and Michael was wonderful. And he'd studied with everybody and worked hard, but had filmed on his own all over the world, but we didn't have sets and the, the uh, saloon or the, restaurant where the, the, the diner where we're all eating they put up they were the the walls were cardboard and then they were painted cheaply and poor, they didn't have money for scene paint didn't have money for anything so what he did was he put a source light somewhere but light would fall off before it hit the walls so the saloon was dark the lighting was around the bar of course we had lighting but you you were kind of isolating and the same in the uh, diner you were right on the people and tight, so you, you never really moved out. But I remember people saying, it's kind of a, if, if it had been lighter, it was awful dark in these walls. It wasn't, it was a beautiful scene. I mean, uh, the uh, bar was wonderful looking. Quality was excellent in the film. But you had kind of, an, it should have been more, it should have been lighter, shouldn't it? Of something, you know, and that was it. Michael was, that couldn't shoot the damn sets, you know, he had to do it. So this was the similar kind of thing with yeah. always reverse you. He had all the sets. He just didn't have a camera. <laughs> it's, it's always, it's, this is the thing about film. It's a, it's a technical thing. And, you know. Yeah, it, well, we, uh, we are still here. Uh, that guy was a, a genius. Uh, hmm. He's a director, but I'm, the, the cinematographer, I don't have his name right now, but he, he made that work, did everything that um, Ted could see and think and wanted and more. Yeah. And just kept it moving, kept it moving. Uh, yes. He was the one that uh, was a real spark on the set. And uh, it was a great team that Travis put together to make mm. this. One. Really, everybody was high quality. I mean, wonderful. Right. So um, we've gone way over our time. Um, so oh, I just want to finish yeah. with a couple. <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> it's fine. Um, any chance of a memoir? You mentioned about your papers being, are you working on a memoir at all? I can't tell you how seductive that is. And I, you can always quote me. I said, when I think of the time I have left, I really don't want to spend it sitting on my ass writing about myself and what I did in my life. Uh, but I would, I, I, I'm, I probably will. I was watching a special uh, on uh, PBS um, on Doc Severinsen. He was the madman. Sem- a uh, uh, trumpet player and right. uh, John Carson show. Well, I, whatever happened to Doc Severson after he left after the Carson show closed? Well, he's 92 years old and he's playing the trumpet and he's on a full schedule at every, but he's not just playing the trumpet. He's playing the trumpet. I mean, there's this mad jazz and every making these appearances. He said, I work out three times. He's a miracle to look at him. And I said, well, uh, look at me. I, uh, I, when I came back in, I'm all these guys that were my peers and I, I, they call in, they want a 70 year old man to come in. So I, Chris sends me, I go in 
And I walk into the room and there's all these old men. And all I can think of is uh, Clint Eastwood saying, you know, you let the old man in. He said, don't let the old man in. I mean, these guys probably were old when the time they were six, when the time they were 65 and they're okay, but it's, it's everything is that way. Well, I don't feel that way. I don't, uh, everything seems to be holding together very well. And I, I don't see myself any different. Um, things are there, of course. Sure. Um, sure. Yeah. I'm doing Airport 77 with Jimmy Stewart. We're standing at the top of the gangway of his 747 and waiting for the scene shot. I'm playing the, the you know, hijacker. And, oh, Marty, sure. And I said, well, and what's it like? You know, is it any more difficulty playing at your age as you get older? And he said, well, you know, there are a lot more careful on stairs. You know, you really try not to take them. You like to work flat land. I'm concerned as to whether or not they're going to put a cherry picker up here to get me off so I don't have to walk down these goddamn stairs. <laughs> so, uh, and I'm looking at who just, Christopher Plummer, I, it's a miracle. Christopher. I was 86, it was something, but what can do John Barrymore on stage? Yes, I would love to do stage. I'd love to get a play and do something. And uh, um, it's just difficult. and. Um, Anyway, that's where yeah, I am. Sure, but you, you you mentioned earlier on you have something else you've just finished doing. I think you should leave. I think you should. Yeah, it's. I think you should leave. It's on Netflix. You can't miss it. It's if you. It's put together by a producing group that did. They were writer uh, producers on uh, five or six, seven years on uh, in that forty-five year period of of uh, Saturday Night Live. Right. That's what they do. And then they have this mad character, the one guy that he put it together, Jim Williams, I think, Tim Williams. And he's an obnoxious character. He plays really outrageous characters. And that's a part of it. But they've got some top people coming in doing parts of the sketch. It became a thing to do. And I told my, I called my granddaughter. She's in Chicago in law school. I said, I'm doing, she says, really? What? My God, that's my favorite show. Not necessarily my cup of tea, but I said, look, you look at them. Some of them are doesn't take it much. You go, oh, I see. There are a bunch of sketches put together. Some are five minutes. Some are twenty minutes. This was about a not a twenty-five minute, thirty minute, but it was funny. I was I felt funny. Great idea. I laughed my butt while I'm doing it. I just uh, and well done. Uh, high quality production. Very high quality. Uh, looks like a feature. Monty, thank you very much indeed, and hopefully see you soon. Meanwhile, take good care of yourself. My thanks again to Monty Markham. Wow, I could listen to that man's voice all day. And we still didn't have time to talk about the luggage in the crypt questions. We'll have him on again. Next week, I'm joined by PJ Souls. And in the meantime, stay safe and well. The Chattering Hour, hosted by Nicholas Vince, is produced by Chris Rowe Management and Tea Time Productions. Producer Chris Rowe, with production support from Jared Friedrich and Amanda Rome West. Composer Kevin McLeod, copyright Tea Time Productions. <laughs> <laughs>